Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Curiosity Project. I'm Steve Shepard. Okay. A topic of major interest for me, because I find it disconcerting at best, is the attack on science today. Yes, I find it disconcerting also. Um, Back in the 50s and 60s, the U.S. particularly invested heavily in scientific research. We decided to go to the moon, for example. The space program was given huge resources. There were some people that were opposed to it, but uh, they were given resources to develop stuff. They developed uh, a number of technologies, materials, systems that had significant benefit to business and industry and people. And because it was developed by the government, it was pretty freely given. Velcro. Everything is assumed that Velcro always existed. Most everything's held together by Velcro these days. That was an output of the space program. And the need to um, adhere something in a weightless environment to a spacecraft. You know? Um, That was a benefit to everybody. The attack on science these days, uh, I believe, is bad for business. Uh, Cutting back uh, budgets, um, denying uh, technology development, uh, denying technology the opportunity to develop. We are no longer producing these discoveries, the integrated circuit, Velcro, as I mentioned, Uh, a number of uh, different technological advances that came out of the 50s and 60s and uh, even into the 70s. Um, We are grounding to a halt. Uh, We're going to be passed by by other countries of the world. And we are not going to be seen as uh, innovators and leaders and developers. And I, I think a lot of that comes from direct attacks on science and technology and engineering um, by people that just want to get on a, a, a political box and for their own personal gain. Uh, it doesn't serve the greater good of the public. Now, obviously, you can do bad things with technology, uh, but technology... Uh, in uh, the right hands with uh, the eye towards um, public safety, public good, sustainability, um, continuing to develop a quality of life, uh, I think is a good thing. And to deny science is to deny a a quality of life to future generations. So the denying of science, um, many people will argue that they're denying it because They believe it to be wrong. I maintain that while clearly there are times when science is wrong, the scientific process is designed. In fact, I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about this on a video. You were with me. We were watching this video together where he said, look, the basis of scientific pursuit is I come up with a theory. I establish a set of parameters by which I test that theory. 
I get results that are quantifiable and provable, and that tells me I'm right. Then I publish a paper. One of my peers, who of course is a competitor, another scientist, says, I think I can do it better, or I think you're wrong. And they run a set of their own tests. And then one of two things happens. They either prove that I was wrong, or more likely, they come to the same conclusions with their own empirical testing, and they say, you're right. Not only that, they may say you're right and further develop it with additional uh, information that they get from the way they conducted their tests, and it keeps moving it forward. Absolutely. I mean, look at just a couple of examples. Skype, you know, free, yes. free telephone calling, free video calling. It's a wonderful service, now part of Microsoft. Um, Skype was actually developed in Estonia by a couple of computer engineers who were obviously very smart guys, um, but it, but it didn't get monetized. It didn't become a product that could that could create revenue mm-hmm. until it got into the hands of people in the United States that that looked at it differently, looked at it from a business perspective. I'm not beating my, my American chest here. I'm simply saying that different people look at these things differently. The World Wide Web was developed in Switzerland by Tim Berners-Lee as a way to try to manage this massive amount of paperwork that was created as they began to develop stuff in the CERN physical particle laboratory that was that was ultimately part of the Hadron Super Collider uh, project that they created. And then when it got into the hands of business people in, in the U.S., they said, wait a minute, we can start to develop applications, we can start to create products and services, we can turn this into a money-making venture that will further fund additional development that mm-hmm. will lead to new and better things. And we see that every single day. Telemedicine, for example, um, you know, robotic engineering, uh, artificial intelligence, virtual reality and augmented reality, you know, Pokemon Go notwithstanding. It's an astonishingly <laughs> cool capability. I mean, I, I think of it, for example, I put myself into, into your shoes as an engineer, the ability for me to stand in front of a vacant lot and with virtual reality visualize the building I'm about to put on this lot and recognize, wait a minute, the footprint's too big. It's going to impinge on that wetland back there. We have a problem. We've got to, we've got to change the diagrams. I may not have seen that prior to actually being able to visualize it. Very, very good uh, analogy uh, because I think it's inherent on engineers and architects uh, in in developing new projects to be uh, sustainable, sensible, uh, sensitive to context, and respectful of uh, neighbors. And um, it, if you just run roughshod over people, you, you will get one project built. You will not get a second project built. Uh, the project will not be as successful as a result because it will stand alone on its own island. Um, it's more successful if it's within a community and integrated to its neighboring properties uh, through means simply to walk from one building to another or have access to a subway station or a light rail system, um, have the city services uh, concentrated and able to be delivered cost-effectively. Uh, so you do have to be sensitive to what you're doing. You can't build something for the sake of building it. Um, as an engineer, you have to uh, build it for the right reason. And, and I want to be be very clear here about something. Um, in this conversation about about denial of science and denial of of scientific pursuits and the results that we get from science and so on, I don't I don't want to sit here and say. People are denying this because they're stupid. Because I don't think they're stupid. I believe they're ignorant. 
And I don't believe ignorant and stupid are synonyms. I believe ignorant simply means, in fact, I know ignorant simply means um, unaware, a lack of awareness, a lack of understanding, which gets us back to curiosity again. If someone takes a firm stand saying, I do not believe this, they should then take a second position that says, I guess I probably ought to know why I don't believe this. Exactly. Uh, ask, ask why. Uh, they should be asking themselves why. If they are satisfied with the answer, fine, great with them. If uh, they're not satisfied, continue to develop the information and come to a, uh, an understanding that they're comfortable with. In the Neil deGrasse Tyson video, he said something really interesting. He said, um, you, you don't have the right to deny what science has proven to be true. You may disagree with it or not like it, but you don't have the right to deny truth, to deny fact, because it is truth and it is fact. And this rolls over into all kinds of things. I mean, for those of us who are old enough to remember being six years old and walking down to the junior to the elementary school uh, on Saturday morning at 9 a.m. to eat our sugar cube that had the, the Salk polio vaccine on it, especially those of us that went to school with kids that had you know, vestiges of being infected with polio, you know, uh, permanent, permanent disabilities, people that were in, you know, were in iron lungs that compressed their lungs so they could breathe. Um, you know, don't tell me that this is, this is fake. Don't tell me that this is something we, we can afford to deny because, you know, I've seen the physical proof. Yeah, I, I took those sugar cubes uh, and the booster, the follow-up, um, and... Uh, as a kid, I, I thought it was a little odd that my mom was giving me sugar, straight sugar to eat, <laughs> since uh, she wouldn't let us do that at home. But uh, later, as I became aware of what it was, it's, uh, it, it was a good thing. I personally was glad that people were looking out for me. Um, it's incomprehensible sometimes how uh, people could deny there ever was polio. And it's a little disconcerting. And, and I think they need to ask why more often. Oh, I agree with you. And, and in fact, it's something that people don't often think about. I mean, those of us that travel a lot do, and you, you travel quite a bit as well, is that there was a time when infectious disease was less of a problem simply because people didn't travel all that much. I mean, I look, for example, at Ebola, which continues to crop up periodically in West Africa. And the thing about Ebola is that traditionally what would happen is somebody would get infected, they would go to their village, the village would get infected, and because people don't tend to leave the village, it would burn through the village, tragic though that may be, but it would stay right there and it would die out with the village and that would be the end of it. Today, people get on airplanes, they get on trains, they get in cars, they walk to the next village, they travel a lot and they become vectors for the disease, which means that when we start to worry about things like Zika virus, or we worry about Ebola, or we worry about any of these other infectious diseases, malaria, for crying out loud, which used to be prevalent here on the East Coast. I mean, Washington, D.C. used to be a malarial swamp. Some would argue it still is. <laughs> I'll, I'll get off my, 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 uh, my, my political soapbox at this point. But, but we, don't have the, we don't have the right to ignore those kinds of, of facts and say that we have a choice. You know, I mean, I mean, look, I'll be the first person to say 
you know, I, I study biology for crying out loud. I'll be the first person to say, yeah, there are people out there who get a, a vaccine and they have a bad reaction to it. But there's no scientific proof whatsoever that vaccines cause things like autism, which is one of the concerns. None whatsoever. There's, it, it is categorically proven that, that is, there's no linkage between those two. And yet people continue to use that. And what we're now starting to see happen is that the population of unvaccinated people is growing. And as it grows, it endangers the greater population, whether it's here in the U.S. or any other country. Well, I, th I think it's part of uh, fear-mongering, which seems to be more prevalent in the last uh, decade or so, particularly amongst uh, political uh, voices and um, the people yelling over each other more than having a discourse. Uh, it used to be political opponents could debate. One would talk, put their point across. Their opponent would talk and put their point across. Now they just try to drown each other out. Yeah. And I don't think that's healthy. Um, they're uh, feeding into uh, a hysteria where they think it'll benefit them. And I, in the long run, I don't think it benefits that type of person. But uh, that's just me. I'm just one voter. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, global warming is a classic example, right? There's, this, there's tremendous hysteria right now because it's, it's, a political, it's a political hot potato around global warming. Denial of global warming. Denial that humans are involved. Look, I believe that the Earth naturally goes through cooling and heating cycles. I believe that. Mm -hmm. And the science would, would agree with me. I also believe that humans contribute to it. Are we the primary causative factors? Perhaps not, but we certainly add to it. And for those of us that understand things like the impact of atmospheric carbon dioxide and the fact that by burning fossil fuels, we add to the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which serves as a trap, which, which prevents heat from escaping through the atmosphere so that we continue to warm the planet, doesn't it make sense that we should at least do everything we can to reduce our impact to that? Not, not to mention smog, health, etc. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, that's not my area of expertise in my engineering field. Uh, but what I can say is my own observation is the climate is changing. I mean, I've seen it in my uh, decades of uh, living in different parts of the country and uh, work. And there definitely is significant change in weather patterns, temperatures, snowpack, uh, glaciers, uh, sea level uh, activities. Um, so you can't deny that. I, I've visually seen it. Um, how it's happening, why it's happening. As a fire protection engineer, um, I suspect uh, certain impacts, but I'm, uh, I'm not an expert in that area, so I try to stay out of things I'm not expert and comfortable in. Yet we can't deny the empirical evidence. There's at least one exactly. island in the South Pacific where the, the entire island is now planning, much to their chagrin, to evacuate the island where they've lived for generations, because the sea level is rising. I think it's maybe Kiribati, I don't recall. But they're going to have to abandon the island because it's right. about to become a non-island. It's about to become a shoal. Their, uh, their highest point in their country is like a foot and a half above sea level, and it's pretty clear the oceans are going to rise probably around two feet. And exactly, unless you want to live on stilts surrounded by water, um, 
which may be an option, uh, but it may not be an option. Uh, they may uh, have, they're going to have to address it. What happens if sea level rises a foot and a half in New York City? Well, a lot of those tunnels that flooded during uh, Superstorm Sandy are going to flood again. Permanently? Uh, repeatedly. Uh, you can build dikes around them and pump them out, but you're going to have you're going to have issues with infrastructure. You're going to have issues with uh, buildings, streets. It's going to impact uh, people as they try to move about the city in their normal lives and uh, daily commerce. So it would have a significant impact. Uh, the nation's financial center, obviously, is New York, and business is going to be affected. I read a really interesting book a few years ago. I think the title of the book was The World Without Us. And so if we were to just sort of disappear from the planet, you know, what would what would happen? And one of the things that caught my attention was that in New York City today, because of the profound depth at which we have built things, you know, the multiple layers mm -hmm. of subway systems and, and conduits for wiring and, and all that kind of thing, goes down many, many, many stories into the ground. Um, there are pumps that work round the clock pumping water because of the level, of, you know, the, they're on, on the ocean. I mean, the sea mm -hmm. level is high um, to keep those things dry. If those were to stop, the amount of time between when buildings are standing and when they start to fall was remarkably short. I mean, it was a few years. We'd start to see big buildings falling over because the support structure would rust through because of the wetness or, the, or they would start to settle because of, you know, soft ground and that kind of thing. I mean, this is the stuff that engineering does for a living, mm -hmm. right? And yet, how do you fight Mother Nature? I mean, if, if, if global warming is actually happening, and clearly it is, and if we start to see sea levels rising, we can't deny that they're rising. Are we capable of engineering a solution, a long-term solution to deal with that? Well, I think we're capable of engineering it. Uh, then the challenge becomes the resource, the resources necessary, the, the money necessary to implement those in a timely manner so that you stay ahead of the problem. And uh, that will be a, a challenge because it's going to get to be very expensive. And if you're still in denial, uh, then your time frame uh, begins to shrink until it becomes way too late to cost effectively do anything on the scale and the magnitude that will be necessary. How exciting. <laughs> How long yes. can you tread water? Yeah, or uh, move inland. You're, you may be looking at mass uh, relocation of the population uh, on their own initiative to get away from the water. And uh, in the West, we're, we are known to have boom and bust towns going back uh, 150, 200 years with mining activities. Um, I don't think on the East Coast they're so accustomed to boom and bust towns. They haven't seen a, a ghost town. Um, and uh, it's different. So, so I guess sort of some final words here. This is not, um, we're not trying to preach Armageddon here. No. What we're trying to say is, is other, than, other than the results of pure science, um, there are no absolutes. But 
we have to accept the fact that if we're going to deal with big, thorny, sticky things like global warming, like disease control, etc., um, it's really important that people be curious, that people ask more than just the question, that they don't just accept as fact any position. Things are always changing, always evolving, whether man is causing it or not. And uh, it's most important in my mind to keep an open mind and to ask questions and to uh, try to estimate what may happen in the future, plan for it, and uh, be prepared. Uh, you can't just um, close your mind and say, well, I believe X to be this, and it will never change. Everything will always change. Isn't it true that if you, how do I say this? I, I read a book a few years ago that had a really wonderful quote. It was talking about the telecom industry, but it's certainly universally applicable. It said, far more dangerous than legacy assets is a legacy mindset. And isn't it true that when you allow your thinking to fossilize, so too do actions? There's been some great innovative companies in our history. Um, a good example is Pan American World Airways. Innovators, experience, that was their slogan. They're not here anymore because they stayed in the same mode the same business model and never evolved and developed and adapted to the new transportation patterns, uh, not only in the country, but around the world. And uh, as far as being uh, an innovative airline, they were the top. They navigation, flight systems, aircraft, they're not here anymore because they had a legacy mindset, and they were determined to defend that to the bitter end. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yep. But it probably was broke. You know, it's interesting. Well, it, it wasn't broke at the time, but they didn't continue to develop and evolve. Right. And then they became outmoded. They weren't really broke. They were outmoded, and they ran out of money, closed up shop. You know, it's, uh, everybody knows Darwin's famous quote, survival of the fittest. But what most people don't know is he never said that. He never wrote it. He never said it. It was never part of his, part of his preachings. What he mm -hmm. said was that survival accrues to those organisms that are most adaptable to change. And I think that message applies here pretty, pretty well. Exactly. Thank you, Pete. You're welcome, Steve. <laughs>